Hello, and welcome back to the ChemTalk podcast. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Elizabeth Bess, Assistant Professor of Chemistry at UC Irvine. Dr. Bess earned her PhD in Organic Chemistry at the University of Utah and currently researches the human gut microbiome and its relationship to disease. We hope you enjoy today's podcast and be sure to visit our website at chemistrytalk.org. Hi, Dr. Bess. Thank you so much for speaking with Claris and I today. My name is Roxanne, and together Claris and I run the podcast for ChemTalk. I'm a second-year student in human health and disease at Trinity College in Dublin. Claris? And I'm an incoming high school senior um, in Fremont, California. Dr. Bess? Thank you so much for the invitation to talk with both of you today. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So yeah, I'm uh, Professor Beth. Um, my uh, research is on looking at the role of gut bacteria in health and disease. And um, my training is in chemistry initially, and then later in microbiology. And so our goal is to really understand the uh, chemical reactions that bacteria are performing in the gut and how that can help us understand health and disease. Thank you so much. We're, I think we're both very excited to talk to you today because this is something that I think has made a lot of people really interested in the gut and gut bacteria recently. I think it's blown up quite a bit in the last few years. Would you say so? Yes, um, definitely. With, the, uh, with sequencing, uh, next generation sequencing getting less and less expensive, it's made it more and more um, uh, um, possible to really understand which bacteria are present in the gut microbiome and in other um, microbiomes. Um, And and from that information, we can then dig deeper and deeper and understand what are these bacteria doing. So yeah, as, as sequencing has become more tractable, um, the, our ability to, to understand um, this community has, has increased. And, and with that, yeah, the, the amount of research is increasing as well. Yeah. So when we think about our microbiome, can you explain what the composition is and in general, like what is our microbiome? It's a great question. So the microbiome is uh, very complex and it differs across every person. So um, the, the microbiota is composed of trillions of bacteria as well as uh, viruses and fungi. And um, the, uh, these bacterial communities are very distinct across people. So we can think of it like a fingerprint um, where uh, everyone's microbiome is so unique that it's like a fingerprint. Um, the gut microbiota is also encoding millions of genes. Um, so the um, human genome has around 20,000 uh, um, protein encoding genes, and the gut microbiota is encoding millions of distinct genes. And so there's huge um, genetic diversity in the microbiota, which also can translate to chemical diversity as well, um, as these genes are encoding for functions that that bacteria perform. Um, And in terms of sort of the the number of bacteria in the gut, um, the the current um, sort of estimates are that there's around one microbial cell for every human cell in your body. And so 
perhaps you're just as much microbe as you are human. When it comes to what is the main determinant of the, the uniqueness between us people and our microbiomes, is it mostly like bacteria that's determining that or is it a combination of all three? Got it. Yeah, a lot of the diversity is driven by bacteria, um, but there's also a lot of, of viruses in our guts and huge diversity there um, as well. Um, so, so it's both. And, and the, the things that are driving um, these differences across all of us are um, the, the environments in which we're raised, the foods we like to eat or not eat, um, the uh, like antibiotics or other uh, pharmaceutical drugs that we take, like all of these things help to shape which bacteria are present and which uh, thrive in, in the gut. And so that's sort of what is driving these differences because we're all such unique people and that manifests in the uniqueness of our microbiota, which is really beautiful. Yeah. And when it comes to that, so I'd like to talk about food individually and then antibiotics individually. So, but to start, is, is the microbiome something that we're born with? How does that start? Yeah. So it's, um, it's thought that you acquire your first microbes upon birth. Um, there is some research suggesting that you may acquire some microbes in utero, um, but you acquire most microbes um, upon birth and get most of them from your mother and then from your caregivers that are around you uh, at birth. Um, and then the complexity just continues to um, build uh, from there um, as you continue to be exposed to more environments, more um, bacteria okay. as well. And is there a difference between the microbiome of a baby that is delivered vaginally versus a C-section? Yeah, there have um, been shown to be differences across um, these different birth routes. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and there's um, continuing research about what the implications of those differences might be. Mm -hmm. yeah. Are there any diseases or things that babies birth via C-section are more likely to, to have versus if they were born with a vaginal delivery? There has been some research uh, looking at this. I'm not extremely familiar with it, so okay. I don't want to um, uh, speak uh, incorrectly on it. Right. But yeah, there have been uh, studies looking at diseases that um, that babies are more predisposed to um, in in, in um, through cesarean if they're born through cesarean section. Um, the other sort of uh, aspect of this, though, is that we are still rather early in what we know about the microbiota. And so as those babies that um, have initially been studied continue to age, we'll continue to learn more and more about how trajectories of micro, um, microbial communities are impacting health over the long term as well. Yeah. Okay. That's super interesting. Um so you have a, a pretty undeveloped, immature microbiome when you're born. And then, as you said, the caregivers that you have and your parents influence that. And then so does the food that you eat from an early age onward. Can you explain the basis behind that? Yeah. So our microbes are uh, usually getting the first look at many of the things that we ingest. 
So our microbes are lining our GI tract or gastrointestinal tract, um, starting in our mouth and then going through our intestines. And so they're getting the first picks in a lot of ways at the foods that we're eating. And so depending on which foods we eat, um, bacteria can use them as their own food source to then grow and thrive. And so um, there have been studies looking at how um, shifts in diet, so eating a, a plant-based diet or um, or removing all plants and eating only meats and fats. Um, so a quite um, dramatic difference but uh, in diet, but this also resulted in a, in a dramatic and rapid change in bacterial communities of people um, just based on these shifts in diet. Okay. And in terms of the composition of those bacteria, is one healthier than the other? What are the implications of having a certain predominant type of bacteria based on your diet? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're learning in recent years is that, uh, so one, we don't really know what a healthy microbiota is. We can look at communities of bacteria and say across um, people with a particular disease and without a disease, there may be differences. Um, but what is actually uh, a healthy microbiota is, is, is challenging to sort of define. Um, however, um, we, uh, we do have a sense that um, there are certain um, metabolic pathways that are encoded in communities of bacteria. So certain chemical reactions that bacteria perform um, that may be present across many different species of bacteria. So um, perhaps all three of us can perform this particular reaction in our guts, um, but we may all have different bacteria that are performing it. And so this kind of gets more and more at the, the level of chemistry and how important it is to understand the chemical reactions that bacteria are performing, because it might not be enough detail to, to know which species are present in people's guts that actually what they're doing at the level of atoms and bonds, what atoms and bonds are being made and broken. Yeah. So when it comes to your research, that's what you're looking at is these chemical reactions and how the bacteria are performing them. So what have you found when it comes to that? Yeah. So uh, one of the areas of research that we focus on is the role of gut bacteria in defining the gut-brain axis. Um, and the gut-brain axis is um, this idea um, that has many studies that, to support this, that, um, that what happens in the gut can impact the brain. So um, chemical reactions that happen in the gut um, that are mediated or, or induced by bacteria can impact things in the brain like mood, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, we've been focusing on the role of gut bacteria in um, neurodegeneration and particularly in Parkinson's disease. So um, Parkinson's disease is a disease where um, neurons in the motor cortex of the brain or the, the part of the brain that controls motor function uh, die. And when these neurons die, it prevents a, a, a person from being able to control their movements in the way that they would like to. Um, and even though this is, uh, seems to be a disease of the brain, there's emerging evidence that this um, disease can start in the GI tract. Mm -hmm. And um, 
uh, the, the mechanism uh, seems to perhaps be connected to this protein um, called alpha-synuclein. It's a rather short uh, protein, 140 amino acids. Mm -hmm. And when this protein uh, misfolds, so if proteins have particular um, structures, they like to be uh, arranged in particular ways. And when these um, uh, proteins misfold, it can result in uh, aggregation of the proteins. So just a bunch of proteins clumping up together. And when those clumps form in dopaminergic neurons that control motor function, it can result in them dying. So there's been evidence that these, um, these clumps of proteins, they form in the gut um, before neurodegeneration uh, manifests in the brain. And so what my lab has been asking is how do these aggregates form? What are the chemicals that might be inducing aggregation and if we can find um, uh, what this pathway looks like, we might have um, a better idea uh, of how we might be able to stop aggregation before it leads to really catastrophic neurodegeneration. Um, so we've been looking at what are the bacteria, what are the specific molecules and pathways that induce that process? Yeah, and what have you, what have you found? What, what is the mechanism? Yeah, so I think it's quite um, fascinating. So there are three um, uh, chemical species that are at play here. So um, we have um, dopamine is one of our key players. Um, this is a hormone and a neurotransmitter. Um, iron in the reduced state, the ferrous state, so iron in the plus two oxidation state. Um, and then and then we also have alpha-synuclein before it's aggregated. So all three of these, dopamine, iron, alpha-synuclein, they have important biological functions in our body. Um, they are uh, not toxic in and of themselves, um, but we're finding that when bacteria do a particular kind of metabolic process called nitrate respiration, this is a process where um, so bacteria, the, 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 the GI tract is largely anoxic or without oxygen. And so bacteria, in order to um, uh, gather energy, they can do two different pathways. One is fermentation, so taking glucose to ferment to get ATP. Um, another is respiration, but in the app, and this is more energetically um, lucrative. You get a lot more ATP when you respire as opposed to ferment. Um, but in the gut, without oxygen, um, we need a different terminal electron acceptor in order to perform respiration. Um, bacteria can use nitrate to perform respiration, and the, pro uh, the product of this nitrate respiration is nitrite. And nitrite is a strong oxidant that creates um, an oxidizing redox potential in the, the um around the bacteria. And because of this, it, can, it uh, changes the oxidation state of iron from the reduced state to um, the oxidized, uh, more oxidized state, the ferric state or iron plus three. Um, and so once we have that, this um, iron can trigger a cascade of chemical reactions that result in aggregation of alpha-synuclein. So we've shown this process um, 
in elegant test tubes, in mammalian cells that express alpha-synuclein, and then also in a C. elegans model of Parkinson's disease. So C. elegans are a, a small transparent worm, um, and we can use um, this model uh, to help us um, begin to unravel like, the complexity of this, this disease. Um, and we'll next look um, at this mechanism in mice. Uh, as well, so we're working towards a mammalian system that better mimics um, the human. Wow, that's so interesting. And you've talked about Parkinson's. Are are any of the early symptoms of Parkinson's gut related, or do you have to kind of trace it back? Yes, um, this is a, a good thing you're picking up on here. Yeah, there are gut symptoms. So, um, I. There's a, there's a few um, pieces um, uh, that sort of play into this. So one is that um, clinical grade constipation that occurs like 20 years before uh, disease onset is um, a predictor of, uh, of Parkinson's or increases risk um, of Parkinson's, which is really long gaps between like this, um, this uh, incidence and then incidence of Parkinson's disease, which is pretty remarkable. Um, there's also evidence that um, in the appendix, so um, a, a small piece of the intestine, that uh, this uh, tissue expresses alpha-synuclein at particularly high levels. And um, there's been a, a large-scale epidemiology study with uh, over a million uh, people in this study that showed if your appendix has been removed, you are uh, less likely to develop Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And this is also remarkable to me because frequently um, uh, um, getting your appendix removed is something that happens earlier in life. Not always, but it tends to be an earlier-in-life um, event. Um, and Parkinson's is, um, is age dependent. Um, so even, uh, the, like, removal at early stages of, of life, um, seems to be reducing risk of, of disease. So those are two, um, aspects of sort of that help, um, uh, folks with, um, Parkinson's disease. Sometimes their, um, earliest symptoms are also gut distress. So, um, uh, challenges with, with GI transit. Um, and this is one of the early um, clinical indicators of Parkinson's in, in some patients as well. Wow. Okay. And I have a couple more questions on the relationship between your microbiome and your hormones. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to let Claris ask you about your, your educational background and what kind of led you to this moment. So before we do that, when it comes to, I know I've heard that 90% of your serotonin is produced in the gut. Is that right? Yeah. So gut bacteria can stimulate um, uh, cells in the gut uh, to, to produce serotonin. Uh, yeah. And there are other hormones that are also produced by, by gut bacteria as well, including dopamine, actually. So aside from dopamine and serotonin, what else is produced by the gut? Yeah. Um, so there's uh, some evidence that bacteria are involved, um, not necessarily in synthesis of, of estrogen, but involved in um, cycling of estrogen. So estrogens get 
um, a sugar tagged on them in the liver. Um, this is called a glucuronide or glucuronidation. And this um, causes estrogen to be uh, um, excreted through the bile ducts um, entering into the intestine. And it can't be reabsorbed into systemic circulation or in, into the bloodstream um, until that sugar is removed. And bacteria are able to uh, remove that sugar. So they can remove the sugar and then estrogen can be reabsorbed um, back into the bloodstream. And this is a way that um, estrogen um, can uh, sort of circulate throughout the body. So this is another connection um, as well. So bacteria can both directly produce um, hormones um, or stimulate the body to produce hormones, like in the case of serotonin, um, or in be involved in sort of regulation of systemic levels of hormones um, through chemistry in the gut. Yeah. And on that, what would happen if there weren't enough of the bacteria that removed that sugar? Yeah, this is an, an interesting question. So um, there are bacteria. Um, so bacteria are an important part of this hydrolysis, It uh, this um, cleaving of the sugar. It also seems that um, some host enzymes that line the gut may also be able to do some of this um, hydrolysis or breaking apart of the sugar as well. Um, uh, in terms of um, like if, if, if we don't have enough bacteria that are doing some of these processes, or for example, dopamine, um, uh, there are bacteria that produce dopamine in the gut um, but if you don't have them, does the body, how does the body compensate, for instance? Um, those are questions that are still being worked out. Um, so there are many sort of regulation points in the body for hormone levels. And it seems that the microbiota is playing um, a role in this. Um, but how, uh, if, if the microbiota may be less effective at doing this in one person, um, does the body compensate in another way? And and do those compensation mechanisms have other effects that we don't quite understand yet? Um, so those are all questions that are still uh, really exciting to, to explore. And one more thing, when it comes to, we've been talking a lot about bacteria and the, how the bacterial role in like the gut brain axis, when it comes to the fungi and the viruses, what role are they playing in, you know, like mood or gut health, brain health, like those types of communication? Yeah, there is so much more research that needs to be done with these other, um, these, these other uh, portions of the microbiota. Um, we know comparatively less um, about them. Um, they uh, tend to make up less of the gut microbiota than bacteria, but they shouldn't be overlooked. And so um, it's something that is being studied uh, more and more. Um, and, and I think there's, there's still a lot there to be discovered, which is really exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. Um, all right, Claire, I will hand it off to you. All right, cool. So I guess before I ask you about your background as a professor, um, I was just wondering, how did you become interested in researching the gut-brain axis, and how did you first learn about it? Yeah, um, uh, I got interested um, in this through kind of a roundabout way. So I've, I've had an interest for a while in dopamine and in iron, 
And um, the, this sort of project started out by us um, asking what might, so, so iron and dopamine have, are known to have interactions, and we wondered how they might be interacting in the gut, and that was not known. And so we began asking, like, when these two molecules are interacting, what things might happen? Um, and uh, a member of my research team, uh, a postdoctoral researcher in the lab, um, was uh, playing around with iron and dopamine and seeing that um, it, it started to change color. Um, we had these like uh, um, colorless solutions that suddenly changed color to a, a dark brown color. And um, she went looking to figure out like, what might, what might this be? <laughs> what might be um, this dark brown color? And it turns out to be molecules called quinones um, that are um, known in the brain to play an important role in stimulating alpha synuclein aggregation. And so um, from there, we just kind of kept taking one step and, and another step. Um, and then this led us to this pathway. And that's how we got interested um, in the gut-brain axis. Um, and I think part of that um, is also, like part of that story is um, points to how um, fun science is in, in a team. So um, one of the things that I love about doing science is that it's uh, you get to bounce ideas off of a lot of people and work together to solve problems and everyone's coming at the at problems with like different backgrounds and different ideas and it makes for um, really like uh, exciting questions that, that we can ask just because we're all coming at it from different perspectives as well um, which is really satisfying. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So what do you think is the ultimate goal of your research? So you talked about the connection to Parkinson's a little bit earlier. What do you hope it will become or what do you hope to accomplish in the next, say, I don't know, 20, 10, 20 years? Yeah. Um, what, what we hope to accomplish is in, the, in, our, in our work with Parkinson's disease, is to contribute to the community of researchers that are also studying Parkinson's disease and also the role of, of the microbiota in Parkinson's disease um, to, to maybe get closer, hopefully, to a better way to, to prevent the disease. Um, currently, we only have ways to um, uh, treat the disease, uh, to treat symptoms, rather, and, uh, and they're not extremely effective. And we also don't have a way of stopping the disease. And so um, if we can find ways that get us another step closer to being able to prevent or even treat disease, um, it would be wonderful if we could play a, you know, a, a small part of that. It takes um, many, many researchers to accomplish that, but I, that's one of our, our goals. Um, we also work in other areas looking at the role of bacteria integrating fiber. Um, and so we are um, eager to sort of better understand how we just digest the food that we eat. Um, and, and then we also work in the area of studying the, how gut bacteria metabolize drugs that we take. So um, how we can take a drug um, and bacteria can, can inactivate the drug um, or change how much of the drug can actually get into a person's bloodstream. Um, so one of the, the drugs we're working with is an anti-cancer drug, and um, 
Uh, we're finding that um, gut, gut bacteria play a really important role in how much of the drug actually gets into the bloodstream and can then be um, effective. If it doesn't ever get to the bloodstream, it can't be effective at treating people. Um, so we're also hoping to you know, play a part in, in better understanding pharmacology of drugs or um, how drugs work, how they get to the places they need to get to, and, um, and sort of um, understanding how bacteria play a role in that and in helping people to be better treated. So we're hoping to play a, a, a role in that really big mission that so many people are playing um, a role in too. Yeah, so going back a little bit to um, Parkinson's, does this kind of look like identifying symptoms like 20 years prior or is it more like drug development or what is that kind of looking like? Mm. Yeah, like so could we like use bacteria to look 20 years before and say, ah, you may be at risk. Yes, this is definitely something we'd like to be able to do. Um, so one of the ways that that could potentially happen is if you find um, specific bacterial pathways that are encoded in the genomes of bacteria and say what we would call this a biomarker. If somebody has this particular metabolic pathway, um, it may be a biomarker predictor of, of disease. And so that's a study that needs to be done. Um, and it's one that we, we hope to do it at, um, at some point with the pathway we've found to ask, is this a predictor um, of, of disease in any way? Yeah, and do you think this could be applied to any other diseases or any other treatments, maybe a little bit down the line? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that by studying um, how um, the gut microbiota contributes to neurodegeneration, um, and as it relates to Parkinson's disease, there's many other um, neurodegenerative diseases. And I think some of the things that we're trying to do will, will hopefully provide a, a template that can be also applied to understand other diseases uh, as well. Yeah, that's really cool. What do you think is the most challenging part of your research that you've overcome or maybe are still dealing with right now? Yeah, I think uh, that research is a constant challenge and that's why I love it. Um, uh, I think it's a, a, research forces you to always be learning and growing. And um, when I'm not doing those things, I get a bit antsy <laughs> and bored. And so, um, so it's, a, it's a challenge, but it's, it's the best part too, um, to kind of um, feel that, uh, that, that you're growing and, and learning. And, and part of that, I guess, is that you always feel like you don't know anything. <laughs> the more you know, the more you find out that you don't know. And there's so much more to learn and discover, uh, too. Yeah. What do you think is the most surprising thing you've found so far or more, most interesting? Hmm. This, um, this mechanism, uh, in terms of looking at the role of gut bacteria in Parkinson's disease, has been pretty astonishing to me. Um, it's, it's remarkable to, to see how, so we can take bacteria that perform, you know, this nitrate respiration 
or we can take what's called a genetic knockout. So um, the gene involved in respiration is deleted and we have these two different types of bacteria. We can feed them to sea elegans, these little worms. Um, and uh, in, in the case of um, bacteria, in the case of worms that are fed the nitrate respiring bacteria, um, we can actually see neurodegeneration. These worms like stop moving normally. Um, the worms that are fed the other diet are fine. Um, and so this really um, seemingly small change can have huge um, effects. Um, and th that's, that's been really remarkable to me um, to, to kind of see um, those big changes and, um, and also to see it happen so quickly. This happens in a pretty short period of time. Um, and that's um, really remarkable to me. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, I'm going to quickly switch gears to talk about your life as a professor. So I know you teach um, organic chemistry, uh, Chem 51B. So what is your favorite part to teach or like the most interesting part to teach that you think? Yeah, I this is a class I really enjoy. Um, so yeah, I, I teach organic chemistry and um, I, one of the reasons that I became a chemist is I really like um, that in organic chemistry, we're thinking about where are the electrons going? Like we're always following the electrons, um, seeing where are they most likely uh, drawn to? Where are they going to be going? And then that's how new bonds are, are formed and broken. And so, um, that is sort of, I guess, the, the core of organic chemistry. And that's what I like most about teaching organic chemistry also. It's um, something that I think um, that I also like about organic chemistry is that um, sometimes it gets a reputation for being a class where you have to memorize a bunch of things and it's so overwhelming. Um, and one of the reasons I like it is because I'm not good at remembering stuff. Um, I don't remember lots of facts. I don't re like, I don't remember things. It's just not how my brain works. Um, but um, I do really like that organic chemistry is all about logic. And so if you understand like the fundamental principles about how um, atoms work and how electrons work, you can um, reason your way through um, solving like these puzzles in organic chemistry. And so um, to me, organic chemistry is all about like not memorizing and, and just sort of um, like solving the puzzle, um, following the electrons. And so that's why it's really fun for me and what I try to show students as well, um, that it doesn't have to be scary. Um, it can actually be um, like a fun puzzle uh, to solve. Yeah. So what do you hope students will take away from your class? You know, one of the comments that I get um, that sticks out most when I teach that class um, is, so I try to give students uh, a little taste of, of my research too, when I like introduce myself at the beginning of class. Um, and one of the things that students say frequently is, I didn't know you could do biology and chemistry. Like, I thought you had to major in biology or major in chemistry, and, um, and we don't always um, uh, in undergraduate classes, like that overlap between the two fields. And um, 
that's something that um, that I hope students take away from from my class, even though it's not specifically about chemistry, but just how chemistry is at the core of biology as well. Um, and you don't have to do one or the other. And actually being able to work with both can send you into some really interesting places and answering some really interesting questions. Yeah, so I think there's three main routes for STEM students. So there's industry, research, and academia. So I guess those are the main ones, but obviously there's more. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences with each of these and how did you know you wanted to become a professor? Yeah, good questions. Um, I didn't always know this. So um, I'm teaching a high school class right now. It's like a high school summer school. And I was um, just chatting um, with them the other day and saying when I was their age, I wanted to be an interior designer. Um, I love being creative. Um, and so that's actually what ultimately led me to where I am now is like this idea of creativity. Um, I had a marvelous uh, teacher in high school chemistry. Um, and I that's when I first started thinking like chemistry is kind of neat. <laughs> I don't know what you do with it, um, but I think it's kind of neat. Um, and so when I went to undergrad, um, I uh, started out majoring in elementary education, um, which is something I really enjoy the teaching process. Um, and I taught violin lessons as well through undergrad um, because I like teaching. Um, and so um, from there, I thought I would get a master's in nutrition and, and, and then teach. And this is sort of my, um, my idea. And one of the classes I needed to take to get a master's, like a prerequisite, was organic chemistry. I signed up for organic chemistry and thought it was incredible. Um, there's something about it that um, I, I, I still am not sure I can fully put my finger on it. It's something I'm just drawn to um, and, and think it's beautiful that we can make molecules, that molecules are all around us. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and then again, it's like this puzzle. Um, so I started, um, doing chemistry and changed my major to chemistry. Um, and, um, from there sort of went, um, towards medicine, um, and thought I would go to medical school. Um, I worked at the medical examiner's office doing, um, human autopsy for a period of time. I certified as a phlebotomist, so drawing blood, um, and and thought I would go the medical school route. Um, and then I sat through interviews, like medical school interviews, and realized in the interview, like, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't what I want to be doing. Um, it just um, wasn't for me. Um, and and then I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And so I was um, being, I was involved in clinical research for um, a time after that, and then decided to go to graduate school um, because again of creativity. Uh, I was really drawn to in, in science and um, research, you get to be creative. Um, and so this led to a, a PhD in chemistry. Um, at the end of my PhD, I did an internship um, in industry, like you were mentioning. Um, this was in Basel, Switzerland at, at Novartis. Um, and so I got a, a taste of um, what it's like to work in industry uh, there, um, which was 
um, really exciting and uh, really cool to see like huge um, uh, range of, of science um, that, that's happening um, there. Um, and uh, from there, I did a small internship in venture capital, um, which is um, a field where um, uh, folks are trying to raise money to start up small their startups, right? To get money from investors to start a startup. Um, and so I was there for um, a little bit at the end of my PhD as well, still kind of trying to figure out what do I want to do? Um, I still wasn't entirely sure. Um, and from there, I um, uh, the things I was reading the most about was microbiology and the microbiome. I thought it was fascinating um, and um, was excited about the idea of sort of fusing chemistry and microbiology uh, together. Um, and so did a postdoc in microbiology and still thought it was really awesome and then kept going. Um, and then um, at the end of that, I, I was excited to keep being able to, to put out questions and then being able to answer them, to try to do experiments, to, to try to answer these questions. And so that's been sort of my, my route. Um, and it's always been driven by by curiosity, it's sort of like a bendy route. And I think every step, it didn't always make sense to people from the outside. But for me, I was making decisions about what I was most curious about. Um, and, and a part of that is where, like in what places do I feel most creative and inspired to be creative? And that's kind of the core of, of science for me and why I love it. That's really interesting. So just a side question. I also teach violin and viola lessons right now. So have you ever, yeah, have you ever done some research on, I guess, like effects of music on the brain or on any like, you know, psychological systems? That is um, so fascinating. I haven't. Um, something that I did maybe sort of related. Um, when I taught violin lessons, um, I do think there are important connections, though, between sort of um, the, uh, so you, you know probably well, like that you can infuse like emotion and feeling into music um, and um, or not, like it can sort of be there or not. And, um, and sometimes it can be hard to kind of bring that element to music. So one of the things that I um, did when I taught violin lessons was ask students to um, draw pictures um, or poems or stories um, about that sort of were called to mind by the music that they were playing for recitals. And then at recitals, we projected them on a screen that sort of showed like, this is what the music looks like to me. And this is the story or the feeling um, that I'm trying to convey. Um, which kind of gets at this idea a little bit that you're talking about, I think, um, because I was interested in this question exactly that you're um, that you're mentioning. Um, but that's as close as I've, I've gotten. Have you done something like that before? No, I was just wondering. That's really cool. Um, I guess going back a little bit, what do you think is the best and worst thing about being a professor to you? Um, you know, the, the best thing is a few things. So it's wonderful to get to meet so many people in this, in this job. I think, um, 
uh, from students to um, other um, uh, professors to people in industry. And, and something that I find that I like about that is that I think my inspiration comes from every person that I meet. Like every person to me is like very inspiring um, for like different reasons. And so that's like a real joy um, of, of this job. And then also um, as part of that, a lot of times we're connecting, you know, over science, like over science ideas. And so um, the getting to, to talk with people about science um, uh, and um, to, create um, interesting science projects together is a, a true joy for me. Um, and it's really exciting and satisfying. Um, and even the worst part of, of being a professor is the other half of that question. Um, let's see, the worst part. Um, I don't know like the worst part. Um, I don't know that this is the worst part, but there's a lot of failure in science. Um, and, um, and I think one of the tricks um, is being okay with that. Um, and, uh, and I think it can be tricky to not take it personally because you put so much of your energy um, into, you know, into science or maybe into school. Um, and so like it's, um, it can be hard to not yeah, take it personally, but I think um, seeing those sort of failures as ways to grow, like a new thing you've learned um, instead of a failure um, is I think the, um, one of the challenging parts of just being a scientist um, and a human, like this is part of being human too, is that we're all kind of a big experiment. Um, like our lives are an experiment. We're making all of these different choices and kind of seeing um, what works. And um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the, the challenges, but also one of the best parts too, to be able to be in a job where you're continually challenged um, is I think wonderful. Um, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I have one last question before I pass it back to Roxanne. Um, what does a day in your life look like as a professor and also doing research? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it involves both uh, teaching, so undergraduate uh, students or graduate students um, in the classroom, so sort of um, like traditional teaching. Um, it also involves um, teaching students in the laboratory. So. Um, teaching students how to design a, a, an experiment, how to run an experiment, how to analyze data. Um, and there's also a lot of writing. Um, I really enjoy writing, so this is good. Um, I, my thinking happens when I write usually, so um, I spend a lot of time writing uh, manuscripts. So um, we're writing up our data for publication. Um, or writing grant applications to get funding for research um, is also something I spend a lot of time doing. Um, and I also um, work in the lab myself, and I really like that. Um, I like being able to still you know, run reactions, do incubations of bacteria, um, and then do the data analysis. So um, those are some of the big pieces of, of my job and then um, and also with teaching students in lab comes sort of mentoring as well so 
um, sort of helping students identify their goals and then helping craft a path to reach their goals as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I'll pass it back to Roxanne. I think we just have one more question and it is, what is the best advice you could give to students or anyone that's interested in chemistry and, and learning it? What would you tell them? Yeah, um, to always follow your curiosity. Uh, I think that following your curiosity leads us to places that we may never have predicted, but are places where because you're curious, it provides the motivation to do hard things. And science is challenging, but when you are intrinsically curious about it, um, I think you want to do it. Like you want the answer, you want to solve this. Um, so I think that that's, um, that's my, my advice. Yeah, leading with curiosity. I think that's amazing advice. So thank you so much for speaking with us. And I think the both of us really look forward to following your research and what you come up with in the future. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking with both of you and, and getting to meet you. If you enjoyed this podcast episode or simply want to know more about chemistry, visit us at chemistrytalk.org and follow us on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok by searching ChemTalk. Thank you and see you next time.